Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with my co-host, Devin Dito. Today is October the 23rd, 2021, and we're here to bring you weekly roundup number 19. As we always say, plenty of news, so we're going to get straight into it with our first segment. We wanted to start off by talking about a couple different issues, but before we do that, I wanted to make sure we disclose a little something. Uh, Devin and I were really trying to shift a lot of our weekly roundup to more Black-centric news focus, so um, you'll definitely see that throughout our, our weekly roundups for the rest of uh, the Black Agenda podcast, so we're, I just definitely wanted to make you aware of that, so if you see that we're talking a lot about Black-centric stuff and you are unhappy about that, you know, that's okay. We're, uh, you know, Still going to keep doing it, but I just wanted to let you know that. So we're going to start off with our first segment talking about uh, black Senate candidates seeing some really, really good um, fundraising success across the country. Black candidates in the U.S. Senate have seen unprecedented success during the latest campaign fundraising period. Potential sign of forthcoming changes with the club within few African-Americans who've actually been allowed into it. According to Politico's Maya King, recent standoff fundraising performances include $9.5 million from Georgia Senate Raphael Warnock. Uh, we also have $8.5 million from Florida Representative Val Demon. She's running for Senate. Also $8.4 million for uh, uh, Senator Tim Scott, Republican Senator from South Carolina. So, um, Devin, some really, really good numbers here that we're seeing out of our Senate candidates. Yes, that is exciting. And, and- when you think about, you know, the conversation we just had with Dan about redistricting and uh, gerrymandering and how that harms, you know, or discourages people of color from running for positions, this kind of feeds into it. You know, part of it is money. It's all about money. <laughs> so if you don't have money, you can't run. And so it's nice to see that <clears throat> black candidates are getting some good fundraising, um, you know, numbers now, especially going into midterms for next year. Um, so as we move on into the show here, our, our second story here is a rather sad story because we lost a legend, really, um, in the political world. Um, <clears throat> former Secretary of State Colin Powell actually passed away from complications of COVID-19. Although he was fully vaccinated, he was also 84 years old and was a cancer patient who had undergone treatment for multiple my- myeloma, uh, factors that put him at a higher risk of a serious breakthrough illness. And so. Uh, however, his death does not mean that the COVID-19 vaccines don't work, as many social media posts suggested. Health experts are criticizing some stories and social media comments made after retired General Colin Powell's death from COVID-19, despite the fact that he was fully vaccinated. Experts note that Powell had mo- multiple my- myeloma, which is a rare blood cancer that can inhibit the ability of COVID-19 vaccines to produce antibodies to fight the disease. And so, Adrian. This was almost instant. The moment you saw the news come out about Colin Powell, it literally didn't take but a couple minutes for there to be these sort of stories about, oh, he was vaccinated and he died. See, this is why you don't need to get the vaccine. It can't protect you. And just ignoring the fact that he did have other um, contributing you know, uh, factors into why he actually did ultimately succumb to COVID-19. So as hard as, that, as, hard as it is, to get people to trust the vaccine, this type of misinformation and just twisting of the facts and leaving out things is not going to help people feel more comfortable with taking it. You know, from 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 this to Donald Trump, you know, Colin Powell's death has definitely not uh, been in the media in the in the correct lens. You know, we should have been talking more about how he's been an icon, what he's done. Uh, you know, the, you know, breaking records, you know, as an African-American, like there's, there's, there's a lot more things that we could have been talking about. But unfortunately, because of us being in such a politicized climate right now, um, his death is used as a signal or a beacon or some sort of tool for anti-vaxxers and things like that. And for Donald Trump to, you know, dog him out and, um, you know, it's just, it's just crazy. Like you said, it's, a, it's, it's such sad news and we should be really talking about that. But, uh, unfortunately, like you said, you know, people are using this as ammunition to say, well, if you get, you know, the virus, you're probably going to end up dead anyway. And they're just missing the whole science, uh, in, in, in all of this. So, um, listeners, we hope that 
you know, we hope that you aren't listening to, you know, people like that. Even Magic Johnson, I saw that, you know, this Devin, he came out and said, you know, everybody in the NBA should get a vaccine. I think, you know, since his new name has been invoked in the media a little bit, um, he's like, you know, he wouldn't, you know, endanger people. So he thinks that everybody should get, you know, if you're playing in the NBA. So um, just get your vaccine, people. Let's let's just move forward. <laughs> To move us a little forward here uh, to another story, we're going to go up to New York City, where the New York City Board of Health passed a landmark resolution on racism as a public health crisis. Uh, This is requested from the Department of Health, and this is going to be to expand its anti-racism work. The resolution institutionalizes the division behind the health department's June 2020 declaration and requires that the department develop and implement priorities for a racially just recovery from COVID-19, as well as other actions to address this public health crisis in the short and long term. This is a quote from Health Commissioner Dr. Dave A. Kershey. Uh, To build a healthier New York City, we must confront racism as a public health crisis. The COVID-19 pandemic magnified inequities, leading to suffering disproportionality uh, borne by communities of color in our cities and across our nation. By these in, in by these inequities are, uh, excuse me, but these inequities are not inevitable. Today is a historic day for the country's oldest board of health to officially recognize this crisis and demand action. I feel like Devin, we've talked about this with some other place. So maybe we've hinted around the fact that we need to, you know, declare racism as a public health issue. Um, so it's good to see that, you know, New- that New York City is starting to make this move. And, um, you know, maybe if uh, the president and some other Democrats are wanting to uh, deliver, this is one of those things they could do on a, on a federal level. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe the list of things that they were we were thinking they were going to do is getting shorter and we're going to cover that later in the show, but maybe this is something like you say, maybe some low hanging fruit that they could actually try to get done. Uh, but moving to our next story. Um, and this is interesting. We talked about critical race theory over the summer when it was uh, a hot topic and that is continuing. Uh, so right now the state of Oklahoma has actually been hit with a lawsuit by the American civil liberties union in a challenge to its ban of critical race theory being taught in public schools. And so House Bill uh, 1775, which is a bill that was authored by Republican State Representative Kevin West, was approved in April and it prohibited educators from teaching topics like white privilege or the history of white supremacy. And further, the bill makes gender, harassment, and diversity training optional for students and staff all of which were previously mandatory. And so even Condoleezza uh, Condoleezza Rice is is walking into this. She's a former, uh, I think she was former uh, Secretary of Defense, maybe, during the Bush administration. Secretary of State, sorry. Uh, Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice waded into this conversation uh, by saying that uh, surrounding critical race theory, she said on the daytime talk show, she voiced concerns about the way that history is taught And she says she wanted to make sure that white students aren't made to feel guilty uh, in the process. And aging, this is really a continuation of uh, the conversation we had over the summer about people really not understanding what critical race theory is really all about. I think the more concerning thing is when you see these bills that are being passed, not only ban critical race theory, but they're including things like making diversity training optional instead of mandatory. I think that's what concerns you about the longer term effects of some of the things that they're passing right now. Yeah, Devin. And, you know, it's also concerning when you've got people, you know, like, you know, Condoleezza Rice saying things like that, because it's not that, I mean, based off of what, you know, Janelle George said in our show, critical race theory isn't making white students feel bad. And it's not like trying to empower black students to, to to think, I mean, it's not it's not about empowerment and, and oppression. That's not what critical race theory is necessarily about. It's about analyzing the fact that institutions can be, you know, inherently racist and can perpetrate, you know, racism. That's what it's about. I mean, it's. I, I wish I could, you know, you know, shoot her a text with the with the link to our episode and be like, "Hey, Condi, you know, you might need to listen to this." Maybe we should. <laughs> I mean, we might. I she works for at Stanford. I thought about trying to get her on the podcast. Maybe we need to do a conversation with her on her misconceptions about critical race theory, which 
I think she's a Republican, so maybe yeah. um, she's maybe she's walking the line. I don't know, but you know, I don't I don't want to throw too much shade at her because we might we might have her on the podcast one day. But again, from that statement and from reading her, you know, the article, it just seems like she's misinterpreting what it's what critical race theory is, and she's adding some fuel to the flame by saying comments like that. Definitely. And, and and again, it just shows that no matter you could be, you know, just a normal person on the street in, in West Virginia, you could be in college educated like Condoleezza Rice, former secretary of state. And that does not mean that you understand critical race theory at all. You know, and people are just speaking on it because they see the words critical race, really just the word race is what gets people up in arms about it. And is it, listen, we've Go listen to our conversation with Janelle George. It is not something people are not going to school telling the white kids, you're an oppressor <laughs> and you're racist. That's not how this is working. It does not work like that. Never and has, to, really. To her point, I get it that a lot of people are spinning critical race theory to be that. But again, we need to make sure that educated individuals like her, who has a PhD, you know, <laughs> you got to make sure that people know right from wrong. So, yes. You know, listeners, we'll move forward. Um, I don't generally. Oh, let me let me let me start over. I don't watch CNN anymore. I don't really even talk about Don Lemon, but I saw this from Don Lemon, and I was like, "Hey, you know, I agree with what he's saying." Um, you know, so let's talk about it. just like Dave Chappelle. I agree with some of the points he said, but that's for another another topic. But um, CNN anchor Don Lemon took President Joe Biden and Democrats to task Wednesday for not doing enough for black voters who make up a crucial part of their constituency. Lemon's comments came after Senate Republicans voted against a debate on the Freedom to Vote Act on Wednesday. Quick little plug. Uh, we're going to talk about the Freedom to Vote Act next week um, in our episode about redistricting and gerrymandering. So if you don't know what that uh, act is about, make sure you tune in Tuesday to our episode. We'll, we'll, we'll cover that later on. Biden appears to be trying to deliver. Uh, like I said, Don Lemon has been saying that, you know, Democrats aren't doing enough. Biden's not doing enough. And I think Devin and I have said throughout this season that you know President Biden and Democrats are not doing enough. But the Biden-Harris administration pushed forward with the bold initiative aimed at addressing the educational and economic gaps that plague black Americans for centuries by way of an executive order. And like I said, the two key points, one is the ec- educational gap. The other is jobs, critical access. Um, one is really going to help to close the racial achievement gap uh, for black students, uh, even though that they've been performing well, despite lack of adequate access. And then the other is going to be an initiative that's going to address the historically imbalanced wage gaps and addressing racial discrimination in the employment sector. So, you know, Devin, I, I like I said, we've been talking about are Democrats doing enough? Is Joe Biden doing enough? You know, I don't, I don't think that they're doing enough. I, I read an article that talked about, you know, Biden's biggest regret was that he's had to invest so much political capital into his infrastructure bill that he hasn't had time to focus on policing and voting and things like that. And I definitely, and that's clear. It's like, you know, every presidential administration always invests so much like Obama was, you know, uh, you know, healthcare, Trump was taxes, you know, uh, Biden is his infrastructure deal. They, yeah. they invest so much in this one deal. I'm just like, dude, I get what you're trying to do. And, you know, hopefully, you know, excuse me for not being respectful, but like, you know, there's, you you should be able to walk and chew gum. Like, Come on, you don't you have. To, yeah, you can't just say I've been doing so much for infrastructure that I don't have time for police, and I don't have time. I'm like, you're the president. You've got to. You 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 have to. You have agencies. You have a cabinet. Like, come on. You know, this is the. In my in my opinion, this is kind of like the the cash twenty two with with black voters, right? You know, we do support Democrats overwhelmingly. I don't know the figures, it's probably 70, 80%, maybe closer to 90. And we did expect some things from the Biden administration. But I think what we're finding is that our influence is probably is limited because of this. You know, we have to, it's not, and this is why it's so important to not only vote for the president, but vote for your Senate, your Senate candidates and your House, Rep, House of Representative candidates in those local elections, because 
like when we talk to Melanie, some of the things that we're talking about can be done on a local level. The Biden administration, I know they, they're not doing enough. No administration has really done enough. Even the Obama administration, you know, didn't do enough. And they had a bigger majority in his first term than Biden has right now. And we barely got health care. So I think we, you know, not saying we need to temper our expectations, but we, we probably do at least a little bit with the Biden team. You know, there will be some things in the infrastructure bill that will help our community. But I think, you know, this we need to probably get together and be like, what's going to be the plan for us to be able to really influence the decisions that are made in Congress that benefit us so that we don't have this repetitive state? Because it's like, all right, sure. Say the Biden team doesn't do what we want to do. Well, what's the alternative? The Republicans don't want our votes. They've made that clear. So it's like we got to figure out a way to really impact and, and influence what's happening in Congress. And that's going to take organization. It's going to take money <laughs> and people getting out on the streets and dictating to, to the Biden team of this is what we want. And if we don't, you will not see us in 2024. You know, you know <laughs> it's, it's a tough thing because whenever I think about it and I know we got to move on because we're coming close mm-hmm. to our time, but it, it, it is it is a challenging thing to be president, you know, because I think to myself, you know, because I want to be president one day and I'm African-American. People are going to be like, you need to deliver for black people. Uh, you know, I'm in the LGBTQ community and people are like, you need to deliver for us. And, <laughs> and at the same time, you do have to remember that that the president represents everybody. You know, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Green Party, Libertarians, uh, Black, White, Native American, Hispanic. I mean, it represents everybody. So it is hard to say that we demand certain things from the president because we support him as constituents. But I do agree that we do need a little bit more action to say that, um, you know, you've got a lot of your citizens who are living in poverty, who are behind because of systemic issues. What are you going to do to at least get us up to some sort of level where we can compete with white America, who is, you know, over 50 percent of the population and has the majority of the wealth and all that yeah. kind of stuff? So I think it is fair to ask. Oh, no, it's no doubt it's fair to ask. We just we have to make sure we do it in an organized fashion and, and get together, put our money together. Um, but that's a long conversation we could talk about that all day but we're gonna go ahead and take our first break and when we come back we're gonna get into some more news here we're gonna talk about um, a 10 year 10 year old girl being arrested in hawaii uh, the department of justice has announced some new rules to battle against redlining and even uh atlanta mayor keisha lance bottoms is talking about changing their jail system so stick with us we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back thank you for listening to the black agenda podcast We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So let's get back into the show here. So again, like I said before the break, our first topic is about a 10-year-old black girl who was arrested and handcuffed at a school in Hawaii. And so this was this happened at a school in Oahu, Hawaii last year after she made a sketch of another student that reportedly made a parent very upset. So the American Civil Liberties Union of Hawaii is actually taking action and they're calling on officials to make changes, changes and compensate the child and her mother $500,000 in damages. And this was in a letter that they sent to the school. Uh, this was on Monday. And so just to let you know what happened is after all this happened, when the child's mother actually arrived to the school, they identified her um, as Tamara Taylor. She arrived at the school and she was actually blocked from seeing her child. Um, the child was actually taken to the Pearl City Police Station and then she was released to her mother. All of this is over a sketch that she made of another student. Um, and supposedly she drew this of a person who was bullying her. But this sketch was so repulsive, it made a parent very upset that they actually handcuffed the child and took her to jail. I mean, or took it to the police department and she was subsequently released. So crazy story there, um, Adrian. And just, you know, again, I just feel like there's got to be a different way here. We can't be arresting kids at school. (laughs) 
you know, the uh, article talks further about how, you know, black girls are generally treated more like adults than white girls, mm-hmm. you know, arresting, you know, a 10 year old in handcuffs. Um, <laughs> that's probably not what you want to do. That's, that's a traumatic event, uh, for a 10 year old. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, to move us to another topic, uh, out of the Department of Justice, looks like they have an initiative that's going to be working to confront redlining. And remember, redlining is, is about housing. Um, you know, we, I think we did an episode about redlining. What was that? Season two, three, three two. Yeah. The last season know. before this one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I think we even talked about it with our uh, black home ownership episode as well. Yeah. But the Justice Department announced a launch of the department's new combating redlining initiative. Redlining is an illegal practice in which lenders avoid providing services to individuals living in communities of color because of the race or national origin of the people who live in those communities. The new initiative represents the department's most aggressive and coordinated enforcement effort to address redlining, which is prohibited by the Fair Housing Act and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. As part of the effort, the Justice Department, as well as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency also announced a new case against Trustmark Bank for its treatment of black and Hispanic borrowers in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, good thing here, Devin. I mean, it's something that we need to have uh, just because, you know, we've seen it. We've, we've reported on it. Um, uh, a lot of discrimination in housing, even in appraisals where, uh, you know, minorities don't get appraised like they should because they're a minority. Um, so glad to see that um, Attorney General Merrick Garland, um, he seems like he's delivering more for black people than Biden. Uh, he's been he's been trying. He's doing it. <laughs> I will give you that. That's a great point. He has been definitely doing doing the things that we've been talking about, and I love to see this uh, because housing is a big part of the ra- you know for the racial wealth gap. That's where yeah, a lot of people have I their like wealth. He's come out about voting because he's done something mm-hmm. around that, and I I don't know if he's done something on policing, but I, f- I feel like he's might. I don't know if he hasn't. It's probably coming. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> but that's that's definitely good to see. And and speaking of, you know, fighting in, in these reforms, uh, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is, is currently serving, uh, who she's currently serving a lame duck term in office. She's planning to transform the city's jail into a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week center that will provide medical care and other services. And so according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the proposed Center for Diversion and Services will be created through a unique partnership with Fulton County and the city's largest hospital system, which is Grady Memorial Hospital. Additionally, support will be provided by the Policing Alternatives and Diversion Initiative, which has funded and worked on several projects designed to support the poverty-stricken, mentally ill, and those who are substance abusers and at risk to commit commit low-level crimes. And so this center will require an investment of at least $3 million from the city of Atlanta with active support from Grady Memorial and Fulton County. So that's an interesting tactic there, Adrian. We, we've seen different viewpoints. You know, we were trying to change the criminal justice system, but this is one where they're actually literally changing the jail system into more of a service system where they're providing services for those who are mentally ill or poverty stricken. And I think it's a great way to maybe divert people from, just, you know, you get them in jail and you throw them back on the street and you just, you know, throw your hands up. This might be a better way of providing the services that are really much needed, especially in our communities. I absolutely believe that. I mean, from um, our pol- a police system, rather our prison system and our homeless population and probably a lot of different populations, a lot of it starts with mental health. I mean, it's not that they're just doing bad things because they're bad people or whatever you want to, you know, demoralize them as a lot of these people have a lot of issues to start with their health uh, mentally. And again, as we've talked about in, in America, mental health is so taboo that that, that we, we, we would rather just wash it on the rug and say that that's just a bad person rather than saying we need to help them. So um, I'm glad, you know, even though she's serving a lame duck uh, term, she's still trying to do stuff. Hopefully, there's some other things for uh, Mayor Ke- uh, Lance, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms down the road. 
Um, another story here is is about a black Democratic leader out of Iowa who's beefed up his security because of some lynching threats. Ross Wilbur, the first black chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, received some violent <clears throat> and threatening hate. Uh, speech from Trump cultists or you know whatever you want to call them after pinning an op-ed piece blasting Iowa Republicans for their support of their commander and twice impeached um, <laughs> commander and twice impeached that's whoever wrote this wow. they've got some strong um, strong wording um, that he needed to beef up his security Wilbur said he received two threatening phone messages and one threatening email to his legislative email address all from a aggravated Trump loyalists uh, with their clan clanderwear uh, again sorry you know sorry listeners we're, yes, they were, we're reading an article and whoever wrote this is yeah they, they like puns out of this he said that while he's no stranger taking heat of his political opinions it, he, it was the flagrant use of racial slurs and lynching threats that made the me- that made the message he received stand out so um Sorry for all the whoever wrote this kind of, you know, puns in here, but just to let you know, um, a lot of people still support Trump. Uh, I think Trump uh, started a social media network, Truth Media, Truth something. Uh, I think it got hacked uh, really, really quickly. It just shows that he, you know, doesn't have quality. Um, but, you know, I think he's also ramping up for a 2024 possible uh, running again. So uh just goes to show you that, you know, Trump and his, his, his followers are still out there and about. Yes, they're alive and well, <laughs> waiting on 2024. But we'll see what happens, um, you know, with that. But we'll move to our next story here, which is about the Ahmad uh, Arbery case. And so on Monday, hundreds of potential jurors descended on Brunswick, Georgia, for the beginning of jury selection. And attorneys argued about which questions they could ask the hundreds of potential jurors during the selection process, which the judge estimated could take two weeks. And so prosecutors and defense lawyers were seeking to learn how much potential jurors say they know about the case and whether they could be impartial in rendering a verdict. And so uh, the title of this particular story was The the Myth of the Unbiased Juror, Adrian. And it kind of goes back to our conversation with Damian Jackson about the Cosby case. And this environment now where people already have these preconceived notions of whether someone's guilty before they even walk into a courtroom. And you got to imagine that in a place like Georgia with the Ahmaud Arbery case, uh, because it was such a big thing nationally, it's going to be again once the trial starts. It's almost impossible to find somebody who doesn't know about this case. And I feel like it's almost close to impossible to find somebody who's not already biased or made some kind of judgment about it. It's funny we're talking about this. I was on, I was on the phone with somebody about this case, talking about this article, and they were like, "This is stupid." He, you know, they were like, "The people killed him. They should go to jail." In the story, it shouldn't be a trial. And I was like, "Well, in America, you know, we have due process. Everybody gets right. their, you know, their right to do whatever." But it, it is interesting that we're in this situation to where we're just saying that we've got to find people who are impartial to the case. Because in my mind, there's like, how do you argue in favor of the people who killed him? I, I just, I just, I, I just, I, I get the whole, pro- I get the whole concept that 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 we should have, you know, due process. Everybody gets their day in court. Um, you know, guilty until proven innocent. <laughs> but just based off of everything that's happened, like th- that's like out of the door. There's, I mean, we, we've thrown that out the window at this point. Um, because I mean, they just you know stopped him while he was jogging and just killed him. I mean, I like how, I'm just I'm eager to know what the defense is going to say. Like, is an accident? They thought he had stole something. They were mentally ill. I mean, I I just don't know. But again, everybody gets their due process. So, um, I definitely don't think they're going to find some juries who are unbiased. But we'll see. Yeah, that's going to be tough. Now, and I understand the frustration. You know, I get it. It seems ridiculous and absurd that we have to go through the case when it seems the facts seem so obvious. Not that we're going to learn any, anything new during the trial. <laughs> it's just going to confirm everything that we already knew. But like you say, in this country, you do have due process. And, you know, everybody gets it, whether you like the person who's on the defendant's table or not. 
And and I always try to think about it, you know, mate, not that it would ever happen, but if I ever get in a situation, I'm accused of something, I want that due process. I want that chance to tell my story in court, whether the people on the other side think I'm 100% guilty or not, I still want that right, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to say it, to say my side and defend myself. So I understand the, the frustration with it for sure, though. It seems like a slam dunk case, but... <laughs> absolutely <laughs> absolutely hey you never know but we hope that it is more of a slam dunk case but just to let you um get into our break uh we're gonna give you a little feel-good story uh keisha spivey founder and ceo of sb market inc has created a specialty marketplace called shop the black food market.com the fastest growing online platform that sells and promotes black owned food brands with shop the black food market.com Black-owned food businesses will have access to a platform that will help them build product line awareness, increase consumer purchases, cross-market to other Black-owned business consumers, and potentially get their major chains because their brands sell uh, depend on it. So really, really good story there. Just wanted to give you something feel good before we get into our break. But as you know, we always end our show with some quick hits, the favorite part of the show where we talk about some odd news, funny news. Uh, and we love to bring it to you. So make sure you stick with us. We're going to give you a break and we'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. show i like this one yeah all right welcome back listeners so like adrian said we always like to end the show with some quick hits here and we got some some good ones for you this week and so we're going to start here with a five hour bus tour of hong kong that is actually catered to people who are sleep deprived and so uh travel starved sleep deprived residents might find a new hong kong bus tour to be a snooze literally And so the 47-mile, five-hour ride on a regular double-decker bus around the territory is actually meant to appeal to people who are easily lulled to to sleep by long rides. And this was inspired by the tendency of tired commuters to fall asleep on public transit. So tickets cost about $13 to $51 per person, depending on whether they choose seats on the upper deck or lower deck. A goodie bag for passengers includes an eye mask, Earplugs for better sleep, and the first sleeping bus tour last Saturday sold out entirely. So some passengers actually came prepared, bringing their own blankets and changing their shoes to slippers, while others brought travel pillows. And so this is an interesting concept, Adrian. You know, a lot of people struggle with getting enough sleep, and I would have never thought about just renting a bus, having people pay to be on it, and just driving them around town for hours and letting them get some sleep. (laughs) It's actually a pretty brilliant idea. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is good. I think about the times where like I'm on a like driving or Uh you know, riding in a car late at night and I get tired. I'm just like it's so easy to fall asleep in a car. I mean it's like when you're riding, it's like you know, if you're not driving, that's like the the first thing you want to do is just fall asleep. I mean, it's just like <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a great like, idea. Like I, th- I'm thinking about like you know, if I had a few hours on like a Saturday, I would probably pay for that. You know, maybe four or five hours. You, you recline the seat back, get your little face mask, and you're man, you'd be gone. <laughs> oh my goodness, that'd be awesome. Like, hey, that's, that's what you do before you go downtown to go to the bars and stuff. Before you bar yeah. hop, you just get on the bus to get some sleep in, and then you get them to drop you off downtown, and you're ready to go. <laughs> hey, hey, listeners, if you see a a sleeping bus tour coming to you, you know, somewhere in Muncie, Indiana, or Dallas, Texas, <laughs> look out for it. That might be us. That's a good absolutely. Idea. You're you're right on that. Um, to take you to another uh, interesting story here, this is about Pablo Escobar's hippos. Didn't even know he bought hippos, but apparently uh, he illegally imported the animals uh, to his Columbia ranch until his death in 1993. Uh, a group of about 100 hippos who were descendants of hippos that were owned by the late drug lord Pablo Escobar have been recognized as legal persons in the United States. 
I don't really even know why this would happen, but I guess it happened. Um, this marks the first time ever that non that non-human creatures have been legally considered people. The U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Ohio recognized the hippos as legal persons after uh, an important step in trying to save the animals as authorities in Colombia have discussed killing them since 2009. Escobar, like I said, illegally imported them. The hippos were sent to other zoos with the exception of four hippos that were too difficult to move. The four multiplied over the years with authorities referring to them as invasive species. Colombian authority, excuse me, Colombian attorney Luis Domingo Gomez Maladendo. Man, that's a that's a that's a lot of lot of names there. Yeah, three times. <laughs> <laughs> no discrimination because I get that in a lot of other cultures they have a lot of names, but yeah, that's that's a lot. I just you know I just got three. Um, filed a lawsuit on the animal's behalf in July to save them from being killed, stating that sterilization would better uh, be a better option for them. So, I, I you know, Devin, it, to me, whenever I saw this, I was like, I, I still don't understand why they would be deemed as U.S. persons. To I don't, I don't know if that's protection or whatever, but I was like, I mean. With them being deemed as people, um, they can like have civil suits and different things filed on their behalf. I mean, they're they get the same rights as you and me, and they're just hippos. That's true. I think it's a protection <laughs> thing. It's interesting, like you say, you would, ne- would have never thought we would say the words that a hippo is a person. Uh, you know, maybe they can pick a political party, donate some money to our <laughs> podcast, or something like that. <laughs> you know, maybe we should reach out. I'm sure by now they probably have like somebody somebody set them up a website where they're taking donations on their behalf. Oh, you already know it. (laughs) (laughs) You already know it. Hopefully they'll donate. We need to send them a letter. Find that website, send them a letter and say we are in need of funds here at the Black Agenda. (laughs) We're we're here Uh, and we're ready for you. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And we reported the story. So even better. Um, but we'll move on to our next story here, which is out of Michigan. So this is at Michigan State University. So short of help, Michigan State University is actually making an urgent plea to staff to volunteer in campus dining halls, including faculty. So Michigan State's Residential Services Department has already asked 132 full-time employees to work eight hours a week in the uh, campus dining halls. And this is reported by the Lansing State Journal, but it's apparently those 132 people aren't enough. And this is a quote uh, from the school. It says, faculty and staff from around the campus are invited to sign up to assist in the dining halls. It says, we have specific needs during evenings and weekends. And that is uh, Vinnie Gore, who's the senior vice president. Um, Gore provided a link to a criminal background check and tips on how to prepare for the first shift. Uh, Devin Sylvia, who is the director of undergraduate studies in MSU's computational math department, said that the request was, quote, astounding. Uh, about 4,000 students typically work in dining halls, and but only 1,200 were employed at the end of September. The State Journal reported the starting pay was recently raised from $12 to $15 an hour, and Gore said that MSU is competing with local businesses for workers. Uh, if that doesn't tell you the state of the current labor market, I don't know what else you need to see. Astounding, I think, is the perfect word for that, Adrian. I would, I don't know what I would do if I was a, you know, a college professor, and the school emailed me and said, "Hey, we need you to come work in the dining halls eight <laughs> hours this week." I don't know how I feel about that one. <laughs> I'd be like, "That's not in my contract. You hired me to teach and do research." <laughs> <laughs> not to go work in the cafeteria. Like I'm not saying I'm above anything, but I'm just saying that's not my job. That's that's not what I came here to do whenever I signed up to be, you know, be a professor at the university. <laughs> if I wanted to go work in the cafeteria, I would have applied for that job instead of my teaching job and my research job. So but hey, if you got a shortage, you got a shortage. You gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. So let's move not to enough. a different story here. Uh, a little feel, another feel good story here. I saw this when I was like, it's not as funny, but you know, if you're an animal lover and if you just like good stuff, this will make you feel good. Police were racing 
out to detangle seven baby squirrels that were tied together by their tails. Um, sounds a bit nuts. This is what the author wrote, but this is what actually happened. Uh, Michigan uh, PD were actually uh, called in with the 911 call. Cops found a scurry of young squirrels at the base of a tree after rushing to the scene in uh, Grand Blanc. Pictures show the animals dangerously fused together after they had become after they become stuck shortly after birth. So this was, uh, sounds like a crazy scene to be born and then I guess get fused together with your brothers and sisters by the tail. It says they grew so big that their nest could no longer hold them and they fell to the ground. Cops said they separated the seven under the watchful eye of the mama squirrel. Facebook post from Grand Blanc Township Police Department used the hashtag, hashtag crazy but true to describe the incident. Um, yeah, that sounds crazy. You know, seven baby squirrels uh, tied together by their tails. And, you know, I don't I don't think my first my first thought would be to call 911 if I saw that. Um, I don't even know what I would um, do if I <laughs> if I saw seven baby squirrels tied together by their tails. I would just I feel like I would try to help them. Yeah, that's a crazy story. <laughs> I can't believe that's true. <laughs> I just, I couldn't imagine what it looks like, too, seeing them all together, you know, with their tails and stuff. It just looked like one big mass of squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> what a crazy story. But I'm glad, you know, they could kind of help them out there. Uh, but our next story here is going to come from Australia. So we're going to go to Australia here. There's a former Australian soldier who was accused of storming an animal shelter to retrieve his cat. He pleaded guilty on Monday to charges from the offense. This is according to local reports. Uh, Tony Whitman, who is 45, wore full combat gear and was armed with a fake assault rifle when he barged into the Lost Dogs home in Melbourne on January 11th. A 23-year-old employee pleaded for her life as Whitman tied her up and questioned her about the whereabouts of his cat. Whitman told the employee to count to 100 and he left the shelter without retrieving his cat. Police arrested him when he returned the next day. <laughs> Whitman reportedly told police that he suffers from PTSD because of his military service. And, fe- and he said, quote, felt like he needed to get the cat back and was acting without thinking about the consequences. So not totally funny because he says he has PTSD, but I can imagine the employee was probably freaked out and thought she was going to lose her life or something, seeing him in full gear with the fake assault rifle, uh, not something here happens often at a, at a shelter for dogs and cats. Yeah, it's not funny because he's got PTSD, but the whole thing about counting to 100, um, that, I will say that made me laugh a little bit because I'm just like, that sounds like a little, that sounds dramatic or whatever, but like hey, that happened. movie. <laughs> I, I know exactly. I'm just like you know, turn around, count to hundred, and the person disappears, and you're just like, what? Like, yeah, I don't know. But um, to take you to our last quick hits, not as funny. And honestly, um, we try to bring you quick hits that are like current and, and not have to dig back too far into the year, or whatever. And this was one of those weeks to where um, uh, news outlets just didn't produce a lot of funny uh, stuff for us, but. Did find this one for people who, um, I guess, like old stuff. I don't, I don't, I don't really know how to how else to say this. But the Israeli Antiquities Authority said a diver off the country's northern coast found a 900 year old sword believed to have belonged to a knight during the Crusades. The authority said Shalom Kuzin and a tit was diving off Carmen Beach when he spotted a barnacle encrusted sword on the seabed. Uh, this is a quote uh, from the inspector for the Israeli Antiquities Authority, Robbery Prevention Unit, said the sword, which had been preserved in perfect condition, is beautiful in a rare find and evidently belongs to a crusader knight. So a uh, really, really cool thing out of uh, the Israeli waters here. Like I said, a 900-year-old sword found. Uh, maybe this is something like a, a King Arthur kind of sword, Devin. Interesting. Very interesting. I didn't think, you know, I've never seen it before, but um, that's a pretty cool find, you know, a 900-year-old sword. And so 
Um, I would love to know how much it's worth. <laughs> if anything, hey, you got to get all stuff. the uh, barnacles and crustacean off of it because it was found at the bottom of the seafloor, so it's covered and stuff. True, <laughs> true. But you know, on this planet, there's a value for everything. Yeah. I'm sure they'll they'll figure it out. <laughs> but pretty cool. So we're gonna go ahead and we'll take our last break here. And we're going to come back and wrap the show up, as always. We'll tell you how you can donate to us and where you can find us on social media. So stick with us, and we'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast, hosted by Adrian Guess and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So as always, we like to end the show with giving you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the podcast. So after today, on Tuesday, October 26th, that's going to be our next regular episode. And this time we're going to be talking about redistricting and gerrymandering. And so... Two topics that you hear a lot about and may not necessarily understand it. This is your chance to kind of get it all in one episode. We're going to be talking to uh, Mr. Dan Vicuña, who is the National Redistricting Manager for Common Cause. And we have a great conversation with him, again, about redistricting, what's the point of it, and really why it matters to you on a local level. So make sure you tune in for that episode on October 26th. That's a Tuesday. Like always, make sure you tune in for that. So next week is going to be special. We got two. You got a double header. You got one about redistricting, gerrymandering, and then our next episode is going to come out on Thursday, October 28th. That's a special conversation with uh, Commissioner uh, Missy Lane Fraser, and she is on the New York State Independent Redistricting Commission. And so we're going to talk to, to her about why it's important to be engaged with the redistricting process and what actually goes into it. She is great. We talked to her before the show just to get a feel for her and to make sure she wanted to come on. She is going to be great. So make sure you tune in for that. You get two great episodes that week about redistricting and gerrymandering. That's coming out Tuesday, October 26th. And then we're talking again about uh, how the redistricting process works and how you can get involved with it. That's coming out on Thursday, October 28th. And then to wrap it all up, to end the week, We're right back here on Saturday, October 30th, the day before Halloween, right back here, weekly roundup number 20 of the season. This is our 20th weekly roundup of the season. Make sure you tune in for that one. Again, we'll have more news, funny quick hits, and you'll have a good time listening to me and Adrian bring you the news uh, next Saturday, October 30th. And so before we go, we also like to let you know you can not only help us out by listening to the show, which we love it, but you can also download or you can also donate to us. And Adrian is going to let you know how you can do that. Absolutely, listeners. And, and just to go back, uh, definitely make sure you pay attention to next week. we got some great interviews for you lined up. So any, anytime we have a regular episode and a special, it's for a reason. So make sure you pay attention to that. But to get to what Devin was talking about, donations, 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 donations. I keep saying that every day, all day, because we need that. You know, Devin and I, we had a a conversation about what we want to do with the Black Agenda. And, you know, if you've ever gone to the GRIO or or gone to NPR or watch CNN, that's what we want to do. We want to be able to have some sort of... uh, you know, organization where we could have a very black centric, you know, news outlet, media outlet, you know, lobbying outlet so that we can really, you know, uh, uh, perpetrate these ideas that we have um, in the black community. And we can't do that without money, um, <laughs> you know, from from hiring people to having all these different moving pieces. We got to have you, you know, like we always say, when you like, share and follow us, that's great because it helps us get more awareness when you donate, that really helps us to actually build our mission and expand what we're doing. So make sure you go to our website. It's just blackagendapod.com and click the donate tab. If you're listening to us in the Podbean app, there's a donate tab right there for you. You can click on when you donate, you actually become a monthly patron and you get things from us. You can get shout outs. You can get thank yous. Um, you can even be on the show. We'd love to have you become a monthly patron. Again, go to our website. Blackagendapod.com and make sure you start giving. 
Um, the other thing, our charity of the month, um, you know, we've been trying to do interviews with our charity of the month organizations, but we haven't been very successful with that. So we hope to be able to change that for you in the future. But to let you know, uh, Race Ford, they are an organization that catalyzes movements building racial justice. They partner with communities, organizations, and sectors to build strategies to advance racial justice in policies, institutions, and culture. Race 4 imagines a just, multiracial, democratic society free from oppression and exploitation in which people of color thrive with power and purpose. So go check them out. Again, that is Race Forward. But before you donate, make sure you donate to us. Um, not to say that they're not a good organization that does not deserve your funding, but um, being lower on the food chain, we need a little bit more. <laughs> Absolutely. Make sure you help them and us out. We would both appreciate it. And before you go, we'd like to let you know you can't follow us on social media. You should already be doing that. But if you aren't, if you're a new listener, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Black Agenda Pod is our handle. And again, that's at Black Agenda Pod. You can also find us on YouTube. Just search the Black Agenda Podcast, and you'll find a great catalog of interviews and conversations with all sorts of experts people from around the country, you name the topic, we've probably covered it. If we haven't, you need to let us know. <laughs> so make sure you find us on YouTube. Uh, just search the Black Agenda Podcast. And again, for me and Adrian, we enjoy bringing you the news and some funny quick hits. And next week, make sure you tune in. We have a double header for you. One coming out on Tuesday, October 26th. The other coming out on Thursday, October 28th. And then we'll be right back here with you next Saturday. October 30th to bring you with the weekly roundup number 20. So until then, we'll catch you next time.